Hello, and welcome to the Vetfolio podcast series, Purring Medicine, brought to you by Merck Animal Health. We're pleased that you've joined us to explore the topic of tick-borne diseases of cats with our guest speaker, Dr. Susan Little. Please note, the information provided in this program is provided solely for the purposes of informing you of current issues important to your practice. Any views or opinions expressed today are those of our presenter and do not necessarily represent the views, opinions, or policies of Vetfolio. Dr. Little is the Regent Professor and Cruel Ewing Chair in Veterinary Parasitology at the Center for Veterinary Health Sciences at Oklahoma State University. There, she is active in veterinary parasitology teaching and oversees a research program that focuses on zoonotic parasites and tick-borne diseases. Dr. Little is recognized as an international leader in parasitology and vector-borne diseases with an emphasis on One Health. In recognition of her skills as an educator, Dr. Little has received two Excellence in Teaching Awards from the National Student American Veterinary Medical Association. Dr. Little, we'd like to turn today's show over to you. Hi, everyone. This is Susan Little. As you may have heard in the previous podcast in this series, many cat owners and even some veterinarians and technicians are not aware that ticks readily feed on cats, but they do. And not only do ticks happily attach to cats that come in contact with them, But ticks transmit serious pathogens to cats, some of which can even cause fatal disease. So we really have to take ticks and tick-borne diseases seriously in cats because the consequences of not doing so can be fatal. Many of us are familiar with tick-borne infections in dogs, but it probably won't surprise you that we can't extrapolate directly from dogs to cats when it comes to tick-borne disease. Cats and dogs do share some infections, but even those pathogens appear to behave differently in the feline host and so the recommendations for managing them will differ as well. Cats can acquire a number of different infections from ticks. The most serious is cytozoanphilus, the cause of feline cytozoanosis, that severe, often fatal disease seen in cats in the south central and southeastern United States, where the tick vector, the lone star tick, um, has very high populations. Another tick-borne disease, though, that we see in cats is anaplasma phagocytophilum, Like dogs, cats will develop disease with anaplasma when they're infected from the deer tick or the black-legged tick vector. So those are the two most common infections that cats get from ticks. But there's a number of others, ehrlichiosis, tularemia, boreliosis, even tick paralysis, that can be of concern in certain areas and with specific patients. So we'll start with cytozoanosis. It's probably the most feared of all the feline tick-borne diseases, and for good reason. Infection with cytozoan in cats causes a severe acute disease with high fever and dyspnea. The dyspnea is due to the presence of these rapidly developing schizonts in the pulmonary macrophages. And then many affected cats will develop icterus, sometimes severe icterus. Disease progresses really quickly, and the fatalities usually occur within just a few days of first development of clinical signs. Now, we have learned a lot about cytozoanosis in recent years, and really, much of what we understood about this disease 20 years ago or even 10 years ago has changed. Historically, the infection was called bobcat fever in reference to that wild reservoir host that was so important epidemiologically. But we know that domestic cats can be persistently infected, that they can serve as a source of infection to ticks that go on to infect other cats, And so there's also an urban or peri-domestic cycle in which cats serve as the reservoir host. We also have learned that although Dermacenter variabilis was shown to be a competent vector historically, 
a much better vector, more efficient and more important epidemiologically, is Amblyomma americanum, the lone star tick. And we see that disease of cytozoonosis in cats really corresponds both seasonally and geographically to when and where lone star ticks are active. So cases of cytozoonosis will increase at times of the year when the adult ticks are questing in the spring and summer and when the nymphs are out in the summer and fall. And then also geographically, we'll see cases reported more commonly in the central and middle south in the United States where those lone star tick populations are highest. Even on a local level, infections of cytozoonosis are associated with wooded areas where cats are more likely to encounter lone star ticks. We also know that cats can survive cytozoonphilus infection, and that's a change. In the late 80s and early 90s, the disease was considered uniformly fatal for cats. And often, once a diagnosis was made, euthanasia was recommended because the outcome was all but certain. But now, we do have treatment options, and many cats with cytozoonosis can survive the infection with supportive care, with aggressive treatment, and probably with a bit of luck as far as the inoculum dose that the cat received or the strain that it's infected with. Cytozoonosis is still a guarded prognosis. It's terrible news for the cat and the owner. But we do now have a chance of recovering many of these patients. Diagnosis of cytozoonosis is still achieved in practice the traditional way. We examine blood smears for puriplasms, that ring stage that's found in the erythrocytes on stained preparations of blood smears. But PCR has been shown to be much better for confirming the infections early. And in fact, in experimental infection studies, PCR can identify an infection even before the onset of clinical signs, day or two earlier. And so if PCR is an option, it's recommended. Disease is so acute that in some cats, they may be hospitalized and under ICU care for a day or two before the stages are evident by microscopic examination of the blood smears. PCR-based surveys of cats in areas where cytozoan is actively circulating in nature have also led us to understand that many cats harbor the infection and appear to be managing that infection well. Now, that's a concern from the perspective of there's another reservoir for ticks that will infect other cats, but it's also encouraging in that it shows that domestic cats can and do survive infection with cytozoan felis. Recommended treatments for cytozoan is a combination of atovaclone and azithromycin together with really good supportive care. We used to use imidacarb and enrofloxacin, and if you're unable to source atovaclone and azithromycin, that may be your only option, but it's not currently the recommended approach due to issues of efficacy. Both atovaclone and azithromycin are given orally, although you can administer the azithromycin as a slow infusion intravenously if the cats won't tolerate the oral treatment. Regardless of the approach with chemotherapeutic treatment, keeping the cats in a warm, quiet, dark environment, really trying to minimize stress as much as possible, and then providing nutritional support as needed is the best approach. They won't all recover. Cytozoonosis is really a terrible disease in cats still, and it's one of the main reasons tick control is so important to protect cats from infection. But some of them do recover, and so it can be worth the effort if the owner is supportive and if the condition of the patient allows treatment. The other major tick-borne infection of concern in cats is Anaplasma phagocytophilum, and that causes disease you know, in a number of different hosts, including people and dogs and horses, but also cats. The distribution of disease to Anaplasma is different than that seen with cytozoan because the vector tick is different. Anaplasma phagocytophilum is transmitted by Ixodes species ticks, so deer ticks, 
including Ixodes scapularis in the eastern and midwestern U.S. and Ixodes pacificus on the west coast. Those of us working in tick-borne infections are pretty sure that infections with anaplasma phagocytophilum are under-recognized in cats. But when they are diagnosed and reported, cats often develop fever, lethargy, arthritis, um, they'll have enlarged lymph nodes, inflamed conjunctiva, they'll even develop neurologic signs associated with this infection. Diagnosis is usually achieved by specific serology, and we can use some of the same assays available for dogs in cats. PCR, which works well in dogs to confirm anaplasma infection, may be less rewarding in cats. It isn't clear why, but cats could sequester the organisms or just harbor a lower rickettsemia that limits our ability to detect the agents in peripheral blood. And so for those reasons, and because we aren't sure when the cat presents with clinical disease exactly when the infection occurred, it's recommended that in sick cats, diagnosis is pursued through a combination of serology and PCR testing. We do use doxycycline in cats to treat anaplasma phagocytophilum, just as we do in dogs, along with supportive care, as indicated by the overall clinical condition. But to prevent damage to the esophagus with subsequent esophageal strictures, doxycycline treatment should be followed with either a water flush or only administered in food. It's important that the, the antibiotic doesn't lodge in the esophagus and cause um, mucosal damage. There's other tick-borne infections that have also been described in cats, Although their significance for feline health is not necessarily entirely clear, ehrlichiosis, for example, has been described in feline patients in reports of case series and in individual cases in the literature. We don't know how common feline ehrlichiosis may be, but as you might expect, cats with disease are reported to develop fever, anorexia, joint pain, and lethargy. The cases in the literature have been confirmed by both serology and PCR, and as with anaplasma, we can use some of the canine assays available for detecting antibodies to ehrlichia in dogs with feline samples. And we also have to really look at PCR because PCR can allow confirmation of a suspected case of feline ehrlichiosis, although it's more rewarding if you pull the sample for molecular assay before starting administration of the doxycycline antibiotics. There's another tick-associated pathogen Francisella tularensis, the agent of tularemia. And we do see cases of tularemia in cats, especially in the Midwest, in the central part of the country. In fact, cats are very susceptible to Francisella infection, although it's usually thought to be associated with contact with rodents or rabbits. But ticks do transmit the bacteria, including lone star ticks and dermacenter or wood ticks. So cats that are outside hunting and coming into contact with wildlife may also acquire tularemia, either directly from the rabbits and rodents or through a tick bite or the bite of another infected arthropod vector. When that happens, we'll see fever, severe depression, enlarged lymph nodes and spleen, even oral ulcers. Tularemia is a notifiable zoonosis, and so confirmation and reporting of the infection in cats is important. Now, another tick-borne infection that folks often ask about in cats is Borrelia burgdorferi, the agent of Lyme disease. In one report, experimental infection of cats with Borrelia did result in clinical signs. But to date, convincing data from the field suggesting cats develop true Lyme disease is lacking. We certainly know that Borrelia infection can cause severe, potentially fatal disease in dogs, and that infections are really important to the health of people and even horses. But cats, although they seroconvert following infection, and so they're often antibody positive, cats appear to manage their infections with Borrelia burgdorferi pretty well. That's very different from anaplasma phagocytophilum, which is associated with clinical disease in cats. 
Because Borrelia and anaplasma are transmitted by the same tick and often in the same areas of the country, a cat diagnosed with what the veterinarian may have interpreted as Lyme disease and then treated with doxycycline antibiotics may well respond and improve if it was co-infected with anaplasma phagocytophilum, which we do know causes disease in cats. So it's a complex picture for sure. But to date, there's not yet a lot of evidence pointing to a major concern about Lyme borreliosis in cats. Cats can also develop tick paralysis, although reported cases are limited in number other than in Australia, where Ixodes holocyclus causes very severe life-threatening paralysis in cats and dogs and even people. Tick paralysis has not been reported in cats in North America, but it is seen in dogs, and it's usually associated with Dermacenter variabilis, which is a tick that readily feeds on cats. So what do we do about preventing tick-borne disease? so much better than having to treat or try to manage the infections after they occur, especially with an infection like cytosone felis. But unfortunately, there are no vaccines for any of the tick-borne infections in cats. What we do have, though, are tick control options. Now, the product choices are admittedly limited compared to what's available for dogs, but the good news is that using tick control in cats has been shown to prevent transmission of disease agents from ticks to cats. As you may have already heard in that earlier podcast, Currently, tick control options for cats include Fipronil, Etafenprox, and Flumethrin imidacloprid collars. Of those, only the collars with Flumethrin have been shown to block transmission of cytosone felis to cats. But that's really exciting because we now have a strategy that's well-documented to not just prevent infection, but to protect cats from that disease, that severe, often fatal disease that follows cytosone felis infection. More recently, Florilaner was approved by FDA as a topically applied but systemically absorbed tick and flea control product for cats. We haven't seen publications yet about if it can also block transmission of cytosone felis, but we know that using the dog Fluralana product, Brevecto, that's already available, that product prevents transmission of babesiosis to dogs. And so we're hopeful that we'll see a similar benefit for cats in preventing transmission of cytozoonosis agents. For the other infections, like Anaplasma phagocytophilum, we don't yet fully know, but there's another isoxazoline, seralaner, which is in the same class as fluoralaner, and it's been shown to block transmission of Anaplasma phagocytophilum and Borrelia burgdorferi to dogs. So indications are encouraging that we may see the same benefit with this class of products for cats. As with preventing ticks, one of the best tools we have for protecting cats from tick-borne infections is keeping them indoors. But that approach isn't always an option. The owner and even the cat may not cooperate. And ticks can be introduced into the home, hitchhiking in on the fur of dogs or the clothing of people, and that puts indoor-only cats at risk. So fortunately, we have tick control options to protect cats, not just from the ticks, but, as this growing evidence suggests, also protecting them from some of the infections the ticks transmit. If you'd like more information on ticks and tick-borne infections in cats, as well as parasites and parasite control recommendations for cats and dogs, I encourage you to check out catsyvet.org, the website of the Companion Animal Parasite Council. Thanks again for listening to this podcast. If you enjoyed it and haven't yet listened to the first one in the series focused on ticks on cats, please feel free to open that one as well. And I really hope it was helpful. Thank you. And with that, we must conclude today's Vetfolio podcast on tick-borne diseases of cats. We hope that you've enjoyed this second in our four-part series. On behalf of Vetfolio and Merck Animal Health, thank you for participating in today's podcast.